Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Medi Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Hello, I'm Tom McCabe, president of the Society for American Soccer History. Welcome to our first SAS session of 2022. Happy New Year. World Cup year to boot. Congratulations to our U.S. men's national team on their victory last night, which sets up a great match in the land of Colin Jost. The U.S. travels to Canada this weekend. Founded in 1993, our society works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can best find us on the web at ussoccerhistory.org and on social media with our Facebook and Twitter accounts. If you'd like to join the society, a bargain at $20 per year, or renew your membership, please visit our website and hit the Join Sash tab. Please let me introduce and welcome today's presenters. Chris Bolzman is a professor of sports study in the Department of Kinesiology at Cal State Northridge, a South African sociologist, and an unabashed fan of Bruce Springsteen, New Jersey's Poet Laureate. Chris has taught all over the world. He has authored and edited several books. George Kiosis also teaches at Cal State Northridge. He received his PhD in history from University of Texas, where he wrote his dissertation on American sporting exceptionalism through the lens of US soccer. His writing has been featured in the Journal of Sport History and Soccer and Society. This collaboration with Chris is his first but not last book. Welcome to Chris and George. So the format today is gonna to be you know, a little bit looser than, than normal, uh, but we wanna start out with 10 to 15 minutes uh, where Chris and George uh, will discuss their project. Um, please tell us about it. How did it get started? Um, what was the inspiration? Give us an overview, whatever you wanna tell us uh, about this, this great, new uh, collection. I will uh, hold it up there. Okay, well, thanks very much, Tom. Um, you've stolen my thunder by mentioning Springsteen. I was going to start off by saying I'm obviously a foreigner. I'm uh, South African. I grew up in apartheid South Africa, and there were two important influences in my life. One was obviously uh, Springsteen, and I was going to suggest that as soccer historians, you may have heard of, of, of him. But the other influence was, of course, um, South African soccer and Arcadia Shepherds in, in particular, the club that I played at as a, as a junior. And Arcadia Shepherds uh, was a club that um, was, uh, was known for uh, a number of fabulous South African footballers and the Wegerly brothers in particular, the four Wegerly brothers that I'm sure everybody is familiar with. And in particular, uh, Roy Wegerly, who, of course, played for... Uh, the United States in the 94 and 98 uh, World Cup. So when I was a junior playing at Arcadia Shepherds, uh, the Wegley brothers um, loomed large over the club. Three of the four brothers actually played in the North American uh, Soccer League. And of course, Roy went and played on in Major League Soccer too. Um, a number of my peers during that period went over to the United States and played um, on uh, scholarships and some actually went into to major league uh, soccer itself so i'd always had this sort of reference to the united states on the one hand the music but on the other hand this idea of 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 football soccer um being more important that was that that, that what had been uh, previously uh, recognized and i think one of the, the the seminal texts that i've used in my um in my work is is really looking at um eric hobb Eric Hobsbawm and, and Terence Ranger's um, The Invention of, um, of Tradition. And I think when we look at sports, and I think the US is, is a good example, and South Africa is a good example too, because when we think of South African sport, we immediately think of rugby, even though there's a much longer, and I would argue, more interesting history around the soccer. I would say the same when it comes to the United States. And my experience of academia in the United States, the first conference I attended was in 2009. It was in um, Nashville, uh, not Nashville, Asheville rather, in um, 
on the East Coast. And um, I was one of two presenters who spoke on, on, on soccer. One paper was on, on, on South African soccer, my paper, and the other was on a Scottish paper, a Scottish football. And I was, was quite disappointed with the reception. And I heard, well, this is a bit, uh, a bit odd, not much on, on soccer. And when I moved to the United States in, uh, in January 2015, I was, I was amazed at the number of football fields and pick up games of soccer and um, different levels of soccer, boys and girls, men and women across Los Angeles. And I subsequently joined um, a, a Latino league. I now play for um, an Armenian soccer team, which is another discussion and another story in itself. Um, but I was struck at how widely soccer was played in Los Angeles. And when George um, Kisos joined uh, CSUN in, in 2016, I was really thrilled to have a um, a colleague who had uh, who has an interest and a passion for for studying uh, football, like I like I do, and we um, decided to um, put together a panel for um, the North American Society of um, Sports Histories conference in um, in Atlanta, in Georgia, and we thought we'd get maybe two, three, four papers. We actually got twelve papers in the end, and uh, those were spread across three across three sessions. And from that, um, George and I were thrilled by the, uh, by the papers. It was by far the biggest representation of soccer papers at, uh, at NASH to date, um, far outnumbered uh, the, the mainstay of NASH, which is usually baseball and American football. And as a result, we decided to uh, put together a proposal and approach university presses in the United States. And to be honest, it was it was somewhat disappointing because the first, I think, two or three presses we approached um, didn't really even show the slightest of interest. They really sort of turned turned their noses up and basically said, "No market, not interested, go away." And that was that, that was disappointing. But um, we persevered, and um, we were really pleased to to be in touch with Brian Ingracia, who is a series editor at the University of uh, Tennessee uh, Press. And he showed a genuine interest in the project and was, was super supportive. Um, so we went ahead with that. And um, as they say, the rest is history. But I just like to sort of um, place it all in, in sort of more broader um, scholarly theoretical um, context. And um, when we think of the world histories of, uh, of football, and I think the two texts that come to mind, the first one, of course, is David Goldblatt's uh, The Ball is Round and Bill Murray's Global um, uh, History of uh, Soccer. Both, both texts actually um, uh, do report on U.S. soccer history, but are, are quite dismissive of U.S. soccer history and sort of, sort of dated from, if you like, the emergence of the North American Soccer League um, and I think don't give enough credit to that earlier history of, uh, of uh, US soccer um, that hopefully this collection uh, addresses and, and, and speaks to. And of course, if we think of um, the texts in US soccer history, of course, Markowitz and Hellemann's offside comes to mind. And I did a Google um, scholar search early on today and they have hundreds of references and it's a, uh, I wouldn't say it's a shame. It is it, the text is what it is, but it's a text which is, I think, very limited. And on that basis, I think it's important that we engage with it and show its limitations and build on some of the discussions and some of the themes that uh, emerged uh, from um, uh, from the uh, Markowitz and Hellerman text. And I think if we use uh, uh, colleagues such as Colin Jose, uh, Roger Alloway, and of course, Dave Wangerin's work, um, I, I would argue far superior um, and very, very important in, uh, in the canon. Um, through the, through the um, initial research that George and I did, we were able to track down theses, scholarly uh, pieces of work uh, written as early as um, and I, I stand to be corrected, 1908. So that suggested the study of U.S. soccer in whatever whatever form, whether it was sports history, whether it was physical education, has been um, undertaken for over 100 years. And I was so surprised that nobody had really tried to sort of address this or to, or to engage with this in any meaningful way. And I think when we look at the U.S. Um, Soccer Federation and, and the uh, 2013 um, centenary celebrations, they, they make a big thing out of the 100-year anniversary of the um, association. But I think uh, there's such a more important 
period, that 50 years from the codification of um, football as we know it in, in 1863 to 1913. And I think that's what we've tried to do in this, um, in this collection and reached out to, to authors across, uh, uh, across um, uh, academia, but of course also to a number of uh, popular historians, a number of journalists and the end result, I think, um, stands for itself. It's the, it's a, a, a broad range of um, chapters from from all over the country, and not the usual hotbeds of Boston, uh, uh, New York, New Jersey, etc. But um, new frontiers, and that's why I think the title of the text is so after These are soccer, soccer frontiers, and I'd like to think that we're starting to open up some of these frontiers in a in a meaningful way. And I'll stop there, and I'll I'll. Let George jump in, and I apologize, George, for speaking too long. No, I mean you, you put it beautifully and uh, and much better than I could. And um, uh, to your last point, I think <clears throat> one of our our goals for the project was to, to kind of think broadly about um, what types of cities and in, in regions would make sense for the collection. And we wanted to make sure that we honored um, some of the really key soccer hotbeds um, that you all know and, and are familiar with. Uh, but also to uncover new locations that um, people didn't really know much uh, much about. And so uh, Patrick's chapter about uh, soccer in the South and um, Zach's chapter about soccer in Portland were, were so, so important. Um, I don't know, even just kind of looking into Los Angeles soccer history, um, I really hadn't seen much on, on Los Angeles soccer history. I think when most people think about soccer on the West Coast, at the turn of the 20th century, they think about um, San Francisco and the Bay Area. And so um, in some ways I was kind of uh, attacking something new um, in that project. Um, so we were really pleased by the balance that we were able to, to strike collectively um, between some of the very well-known and prominent and important soccer hotbeds and, and maybe some lesser known areas that have their own really interesting stories to tell. And being able to assemble them all in, into a unified collection um, really allows for, for comparative analysis and for us to think about how the local connects to the national and things like that. Before we open it up, I think it's important because we, we have a mix of people on the call, public historians, enthusiasts. Could you um, encapsulate, you know, the, the, the Markovitz, Hellerman, you know, sports exceptionalism, uh, argument and then how this collection of chapters looks to, to um, you know, pull that apart, undermine it. So, so at the outset, we can understand, you know, what, what one of the aims uh, of this collection is. George, you want to have a go? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's kind of the idea that, that it, what, they, what they term at the level of sport culture, so not necessarily in terms of, of participation, but in terms of overall cultural entrenchment. Um, the sport of soccer doesn't uh, quite gain the traction it does in, in the United States that it does in, in countries elsewhere. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a really interesting concept and obviously it's been very influential in, in terms of how people have thought about the game. Uh, I think personally, my issue with it is when you kind of start with exceptionalism, you're, you're more inclined to see only the exceptions. And, um, and that's a problem, right? Um, because there, there are stories that suggest um, that maybe the American soccer experience isn't, isn't as exceptional as it often, as is often believed. And I know speaking personally, um, a lot of my work, uh, kind of my, my dissertation work has been influenced by the transnational turn in history and this idea that we really need to think and ask and probe across borders. Um, if you kind of start, start thinking, uh, about exceptionalism in a transnational context, um, a, a, a lot of those points of, of difference start to break down. So even something like, you know, you know more recently, the Nassau in the 1970s playing around with the offside rule. Um, that wasn't the only league that was doing this. And there was a, a global discussion really about ways to, to make the game uh, more open and attractive. And um, many of the US soccer officials saw what they were doing as being something in service to the global soccer world. So we really need to kind of put the American soccer story into a a conversation with the global soccer story, and we start to see some of those connections even in, in, in some of the chapters at the turn of the 20th century, in particular with, with who's playing. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think George is absolutely right there. And um, again, uh, being South African, being a foreigner growing up in South Africa, there was always this notion of a South African exceptionalism too. So I'm very wary of using this idea of we're exceptional, we're different. Um, and that's where comparative and I think global history is so, so crucial. And just to, to add to George's point about the offsides rule, the offsides rule was being played with in, uh, 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 being experimented with in South Africa in the early 1960s, uh, substitutions as well. So it's, it wasn't as if it was something new, it been, um, had been done in other parts of the world. I think also importantly, um, the Markovitz uh, Hellerman text, um, while it does use um, references, it doesn't actually draw from any primary sources. And as um, sports historians, primary sources are bread and butter. And um, I think this is this sort of invention of the traditional, this perpetuation of this myth, I think, that exists in in US um, sports history that soccer doesn't have this history is because the original sources that are being drawn from um, are not using primary sources in themselves. And then soccer sort of starts, North American Soccer League, Pele comes to the United States, and that when soccer, is, is when soccer allegedly kicks off and starts. And as we know, that's absolutely not the case. I'll add one thing there, and I'm sure others would, would pile on in this. I remember uh, a US-based um, football scholars program, and Peter Leggi, the host, uh, said, I think we buried the mark of its element thesis, this uh, soccer exceptionalism crowded out uh, by other sports uh, theory today. And that was a handful of years ago. So if that was a funeral, then uh, maybe today and this book is, is a memorial service. So, uh, or just another shovel of dirt on top or another nail in the coffin. So I remember reading that book and I know others uh, have as well. And, and that was one of the things that drove us to do what we do, to get into those primary sources, to tell these forgotten stories. Um, so, so in that way, it's an important book, but, but we use it as scholars of, of you know, American soccer history, um, you know, to prove them wrong, uh, if you will. So thanks for, for clarifying that. I'm not sure if everybody on the call would, would, would understand that this is a real important, uh, you know, back and forth between scholars. So I'd like it, to open it up to anyone else for a comment, uh, for observation, for a question, and, and let's, uh, let's get some free form if that's all right with, uh, with Chris uh, and George. And I'll try to do my best uh, to moderate. You can use the, the, you know, holding your hand up uh, if you'd like. Sorry, so let's go Michael, Gabe, uh, and then David, thank you, in that order. Uh, thank you. Uh, the question I have on the <laughs> primary sources, which is because I'm, I'm, I'm endeavoring to do something similar, the which primary sources, because I haven't received the book to be fair. Uh, I ordered it, it hasn't arrived. Um, you know, how difficult was it for you to gain access to the um, the immigrant newspapers and the translations and things of that nature in order to be able to come up with primary sources, if you will. Um, there, um, you know, I'm originally from overseas. German speaking was my first language. I've been here for many years. Mm -hmm. And I know in the general New York area, there was the German American League, there was the Italian League, etc. And if you had access to the right newspapers, that's great. But you're going back to way back when. So if you can elaborate a little bit on that, it would be helpful. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the point on foreign language uh, papers is, is a very good one, actually. And I don't know that too many of the chapters dipped into um, some of the foreign language papers, but you're right. I mean, those are, those are a, a treasure trove, and I think... Um, good historical research on U.S. soccer and the history is going to uh, engage with with those uh, more broadly. A, a lot of the the newspapers that we looked at were were kind of at, at least for my chapter were, were digitized and available online. Um, I know with with lockdown, getting stuff on microfilm was a little bit uh, trickier, if not impossible. But um, but at least the, the the newspapers that I worked with were were digitally accessible. Um, but then I, I I was also able to to, to track down some. Um, 
athletic club newspapers and things like that it, in special collections at, at, at the Huntington Library and in meeting minutes of the uh, Board of Education, uh, Los Angeles uh, School District Board uh, at UCLA Library and in uh, places like that. Um, the, other, the other kind of primary source that I saw used uh, quite often in, in some of the chapters was uh, various, various types of genealogical research. Um, and again, really with, with, with kind of the wonders of digitization, a, a lot of um, genealogical research is, is pretty, pretty accessible these days. So um, uh, old censuses, uh, ship manifests, uh, birth, birth documents, uh, marriage licenses, and things like that, you can actually find online and, and can kind of give you really interesting color detail about you know, who people uh, were, you know, when, when they immigrated to the United States, if they immigrated, um, what types of jobs that they were, and so forth. So um, I'd say in a lot of ways, new newspapers, English language newspapers still drove many of the chapters, but you also see some really interesting um, sources that kind of round out, um, round out the analysis. George and Chris, you, this idea of, an, of, a dish of frontiers, now that we have this under our belt, and my congratulations on your all's work on this, have you been able to, where does the research lead us now? What additional frontiers are we, are we now alerted to uh, through your book? I think that's a, a great question, Gabe. Um, I mean, I would, I would say that the first, the first thing we have to deal with in a more meaningful and systematic way, of course, is the woman's game. Um, the fact that every author in, um, in the book bar, in the collection bar, um, the author of the epilogue is, is a man, um, suggests something is that, 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 and this is not only a, a, a US phenomenon, that we need to consider the, the woman's game in a far more um, systematic uh, uh, manner. But I also think we need to go beyond the traditional ethnic groups uh, that we have in uh, US soccer history, whether we're talking about the Italians or whether we're talking about uh, uh, Latinos in, um, in the West of the country. We have examples of Chinese playing um, uh, football. We have examples of African-Americans playing football. We have uh, examples um, that are, I think, fascinating and absolutely under-researched. So those would be the two themes that I would push, but I'd also suggest, and this is really, in terms of some of the work that you've done, Gabe, around the um, the political um, organizations playing football, that fabulous paper of yours from a few years ago in Soccer and Society on socialists and communists in uh, I think the Chicago area. I think that those kinds of frontiers as well, looking at other than sports clubs themselves, but looking at maybe political organizations or trade unions or looking at uh, works teams. So drawing from um, Tony Mason's fabulous book on English um, football and the emergence of football in England, looking at the church, for example, looking at pubs and breweries, looking at uh, uh, businesses, those kinds of frontiers, if you like, I think we should uh, be, be, be considering in more detail. I guess I, I first just want to follow up on the, the question that Michael had. It um, to me, the framing of the uh, of the the book, right? You know, kind of U.S. soccer's prehistory is kind of what I kept uh, thinking about it for a few years. You know, up until the formation formation of the United States uh, Football Association um, in 1913. Um, so that kind of framing device kind of kept the need from looking at the New York area. Uh, foreign language newspapers. I know that may sound like a, a poor excuse for that sin of omission. So like the New Yorker Staatszeitung, I think is extremely important uh, for any work that needs to be done uh, from any, you know, any, any scholarship from 1920 on, right? Um, and again, you have to go in library. I don't, to my knowledge, that those issues are not digitized, but, you know, you can go to the New York Historical Society or the New York Public Library and actually get those old copies of the, of the Staatszeitung. But, um, you know, so in particular, I'm very interested in the German community, but again, there are other communities. Um, but the, the, the evolution of football in the 19th century um, beyond the, the British Isles, um, to me, meant that it didn't have to go there as much. Again, that that's just an ex a bit of an excuse, but at least that's that's the way I'm thinking with that. Um, and also, I just wanted to, to, to follow up too in terms of uh, 
a little a little what the, the editors are just saying is is that um, you know there was one thing with the women's game you know Chris brought this up um, Chris and George I think I was probably driving them nuts you know the the digitization of things means that you just kept finding out more and more and more more and more and more so um, well past the eleventh hour right uh, uh, <laughs> yeah I, I realized whatever about the the St George's women's game that was after the meeting that formed the USFA. It was after it. And it was like, well, do I, you know, do I put in a couple sentences? And you remember I had an, a pretty bad injury. So I was having a really hard time using my hands at all. I was having a hard time typing. And it was like, well, it didn't really fit in with whatever. But I was trying to, you know, finally found what I'd been looking for that. And it was a little after, just outside that frame. But the connection to the work with the St. George's earlier um, was the thing that was just so fascinating about that. Like, and again, that in terms of those frontiers or those other organizations that, you know, football clubs with names that were the same as a particular ethnic group within a, a locale um, that, you know, a football club may have that name and the football club may or may not be reflected in the, the minutes <laughs> of a particular organization. Um, but, but then maybe they had a, you know, some teams that were representing them uh, in a more or less official way. And then all of a sudden, maybe some of the some of their family members or what have you um, are all of a sudden putting together a women's football team. So, um, you know, I think some of the fun of it was just these things coming up. Um, I just want to make sure that everybody knows, as I know, I, I've worked as an editor with some of you, uh, but I just want to express my gratitude once again to both Chris and George for their remarkably thorough gold standard as editors. It was just such a joy to work with the two of you. And I know you uh, had to use carrots and, and, and whips on me, and uh, uh, but I'm just so grateful. It was so thorough and, and such a great learning experience working with, with two editors who showed so much care for the project. So all that said, um, I have a question for both of you. Um, as there were new surprises popping up all the time, what surprises were there for you in all these chapters? Uh, you know. It, it, such a phenomenal learning experience working on it. And then, you know, reading all the other chapters, there's so many great things in here, but I'm curious in terms of, for the two of you, um, what, what stand, what, what passages may stand out as the real kind of eye openers? Whoa, didn't expect that. That's a great uh, question. I mean, I'm just looking at the contents page, uh, uh, David, and just quickly, thank you very much for those kind words, but um, an edited collection is um, only as good as its contributors. So without the contributions, we wouldn't have had this collection. So, so all of you made it. So thank you for that. But in terms of your question, I mean, I think... Um, you know, Patrick Sullivan's stuff is, I don't know if Patrick, Patrick is on the, on the call and maybe Patrick can, can jump in. I'd love for, for him to speak a little bit here, but his chapter on uh, soccer in the sunny South, who would have thought about football in the South, right? It was absolutely fascinating. Zach, of course, is uh, uh, chapter of football in, in, in Oregon. And I'd love to hear uh, Zach's thoughts on that, particularly with um, the Timbers and the Roses. Um, is there any discussion or is there any link to that to that prehistory as we've been referring to? So those, I mean, all the chapters are very strong in my opinion, but those two chapters in particular, I thought were, were absolutely fascinating. So I don't know, maybe Patrick or, or Zach can jump in or, or George, you too, sorry, apologies. Go ahead, Zach. Yeah, so for me, um, you know, doing the Oregon chapter was, I, I mean, it was eye-opening for me, having lived in Oregon, having rooted for the Timbers, um, you know, I used to live two blocks above uh, what was then PGE Park, and, you know, seeing that through line, especially for the location where what's now Providence Park is at, what was then Multnomah Field. But seeing that connection of this plot of land, this pitch has been played on for over 100 125 years at this point, almost 130 years. That was the thing that um, I think was, that's the kind of the chain that follows through is sort of, you know, these spaces, um, you know, the frontier was creating that hallowed space that early and, and having it be such a, a consistent space for playing the game throughout the city, even though, you know, it's also been used for baseball and American football and so many other things. Um, 
and you know to speak as well about the uh you know the resources and everything for me the, the digital archives were huge and the fact was at the time i was also working you know when i i first drafted the chapter i was still working for the university of oregon archives so i had access to a lot of materials there that um you know now that i'm at penn state i couldn't write that chapter you know out here with the resources that I have access to. So I think part of it, you know, part of the stories that we get are a condition of just where we're researching from. And I think that was so huge for getting that, that chapter locked in. Um, yeah, so as far as my research goes with uh, the soccer or organized <laughs> soccer in the Southeast uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, I guess like Zach, I mean, I, the South, I mean, as I mentioned in my chapter, I mean, the, the immigration, the immigrant population was minuscule in the South. Um, although many of the early organizers were, you know, white British men, mostly Scottish and Welsh, English. Um, it was just such a small part of the local population. And um, when I started to dig into some of the digitized records and uh, the big thing that I, I as everybody knows, doing the research, you're, you're oftentimes limited by the newspaper accounts to just last names. Um, I knew that one of the teams in the metro area was uh, composed of stonecutters out of Lithonia, which is uh, just east of the of downtown Atlanta. It's a it was a major granite producing area, but I really had no not much more information beyond that, especially in local histories. There was just been maybe a few sentences about the, the granite quarry industry in DeKalb County. Uh, much of that was associated um, with the Venables ownership of Stone Mountain in Lithonia. The Venables were the uh, founders of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and so for me, it was really kind of uncovering that history. A lot of, I mean, again, I haven't found much that had been written about it um, regarding uh, the Venables um, bringing stonecutters from Aberdeen over to uh, Georgia in the 1880s. These guys were the early ones kind of organizing, playing, I'm guessing, you know, local games or, or wherever, and then being involved in the organization of the Atlanta League um, in the 19, in 1907. And so I had to really dig a lot talking about sources. I, I'll just kind of wrap up, but uh, one of the main sources that I really relied on was um, uh, union journals for the paving cut cutters industry. Um, which were housed at Johns Hopkins University. I had to contact a local researcher, a student researcher, and have them really photograph sections where Lithonia and Stone Mountain were mentioned in there. And I was able to pull more and more names and kind of create some structure to my research about the players and the, and the league and how it was associated with the union. Um, and then also just having some luck reaching out, like we talked about with genealogical research, I would just kind of call people. And I managed to call one woman um, and she was, I called her brother, she didn't know anything about uh, their father maybe playing soccer, but he said, well, my, my sister kind of is the family historian, and he put me in touch with her, I called her, and she brought in all of these photos of her grandfather and her father who were Welsh immigrants, um, plus just tons of photos of them with their co-workers and relatives, brothers, uh, Welsh Bibles, uh, things of that nature, all of this information that really was just kind of eye-opening. And, and to me, I feel like I really owe her a debt of gratitude because that was what, even before looking in the, the union journals and things of that nature, she was the one that kind of helped me get started on my research of who these people were because there just was not much about them at all. I'm glad you mentioned the the kind of challenge with just starting with the last name and, and maybe a first initial too, because it's something um, something that I ran into and and just being able to, you know, so oftentimes the, the last names were not uncommon last names. And uh, you want to make sure that you're talking about the same, the, the person that you've identified as the same person in, in different sources and, and being able to, to kind of confirm those details is, is very, very challenging. Um, and just thinking about uh, Brian's chapter, I mean, he he addresses it um, in his chapter. I think uh, you know he, he he's dealing with women whose you know social circumstances were made it even even more difficult to to kind of identify uh, who they were because oftentimes they they played using um, uh, not not their real names. Um, 
I was just going to say I'm, I, I found this very interesting um, because I've been working on something similar concerning Newfoundland um, in the same period, basically. I've reached 1898 now, and some of the stories I've heard are, are very similar. For instance, the stone cutters. Um, you know, one of the first things in, in St. John's here was called cathedral workers. And the reason was that these were Scottish where had come to work uh, um, here on, on the Anglican Cathedral. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, to reading. I have ordered the books. I haven't got them yet. Um, so um, I wish I had. So I would have more, but more uh, to, to contribute. But um, um, what I've heard so far is that um, the story or the key variables in each of the story in the different locations, um, you know, are not very different uh, in those very early days. I think, Osvaldo, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, 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 make, um, we make that quite clear in the introduction that immigration really drives the game. Um, I think you're absolutely right. But um, this idea, which I think goes back to this, you know, the Markovitz exceptionalism idea and, and some of the earlier authors on US soccer history referring to it only as an immigrant's game. Um, we also have um, the sons and daughters of these immigrants who are taking up soccer and they themselves start to play the game and these become Americans. So these are Americans in the in in, in the 19th century who are playing, who are playing the game and are, are spreading the game. But I think immigration is absolutely crucial. Um, but I was going to I was going to ask if Brian could possibly jump in because Brian's chapter is the only chapter that deals with uh, with the woman's game and maybe he could speak to that a bit because I think that's a it's a fascinating fascinating story and um, I wonder if it's not if they're not similar stories around the woman's game that can be uncovered in other cities across the U.S. Sorry, Brian, to put you on the spot there, but I like your chapter. Uh, hi, thanks, and, and congratulations to Chris and George for the book, and uh, I echo David's praise of their uh, detailed editing and um, just the care and the, all the work they put in to, to complete it. Um, yeah, my chapter was on um, the first documented women's soccer game in the United States, or game soccer game played by women in San Francisco in uh, 1893. And um, the chapter was pretty much focused on that. That's, it is in, in many ways a kind of a unique event as far as I could find in other um, research. Um, and there doesn't, you know, there's a big gap then when, before we see more women's games taking place. So um, yeah, I think there are tantalizing hints in, in my book, I kind of expand on it a little bit, um, expand on the chapter as it appeared in the, this collection. So there are some tantalizing hints of women um, forming games or um, women's teams emerging out of uh, broader athletic clubs in various areas, but it's really uh, pretty sporadic and incomplete. And you know, I, it, it, part of it may in fact be that they it just didn't merit the attention in the newspapers that you know the men's game might get a small amount of attention and the women's game might get a little bit of attention, but more from a kind of, isn't this funny, isn't this unusual, isn't this strange kind of a way rather than any sort of sustained coverage. So, um, I mean, I do think that women wanted to play and, and probably did play, but uh, as the discussion has, has sort of gone, it, it's really a question of finding the source material. And unfortunately, a lot of the source material is, is not available or as I said, was either deliberately or maybe not deliberately, um, not necessarily covering, um, you know, women's attempts to play the game. Um, I think another factor is that uh, it does also start to emerge at particularly at the women's colleges in the late 19th century, but it pretty much was an on-campus thing. So different classes might play each other or there might be a, a faculty team playing a, you know, a student team or something like that. So, um, so again, it's it's pretty much confined to the campuses of these, you know, mostly about seven to ten women's colleges in the Northeast in the late 19th century. So again, it's not going to um, generate a lot of coverage probably outside of that environment. I know Jean Williams has done some research 
um, you know, in the archives uh, around where I live in Western Massachusetts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's sort of what I would have to say about it. One of the things I've discovered, and, and I was inspired by Brian, sometimes you get these reminiscences, I can't even say it, remembrances, you know, looking back on sport in a city or sport in a locale. So, so this is one of them, and it's from 1950. And at the very end, there's a few sentences about this, this family of athletes, including a young girl, Grace Hawthorne playing soccer, playing baseball, playing American football. So like, I got to go and find her, right? So then you go to the census and try to find her. And she's right near this cathedral where they were playing um, on, um, you know, what, what they call Bishop's Lot, uh, the big cathedral in Newark, New Jersey. Then she's got a passport application. And then I find out that she worked for the YMCA and that she went to um, Europe during the war is you know one of these games officials that Brian has written about before. And then the real find for me was there was a picture, and I don't know if you can see that, but she looks like migrant mother to me, like almost that same pose by Dorothea Lang. So these stories are out there, but they're really hard to find. You almost stumble upon them, and then. As, as Brian said, use the genealogy, use, um, you know, the city directories and, and try to put some of the pieces together for the puzzle. I have a question um, for George and Chris. Um, was there any, any topics or any areas or any places that you wanted to include but, but couldn't include for some reason or another? I'm not sure. George, do you recall? Um... Yeah, I'm trying to think back to like the early, um, to the early, early days when the project was first coming together. Um, and I want to say that there were, there was maybe one scholar who was looking to do uh, a chapter on soccer and I'm trying to maybe, maybe another chapter in the South or, or maybe in the Midwest, it's been a while. And, uh, and the issue was just um, uh, uh, kind of finding adequate source material. To, to run with that. Um, and so in some sense, if you look at kind of the geographic spread um, of what's there, it, it, it's primarily um, primarily the coasts um, with a couple of key Midwestern hotbeds. And then you have uh, the one chapter on, on the South. Um, but that's, that's, that's the one that I recall. I think, I think also, um, I mean, George and I, consciously had the cutoff date of 1913 and George was able to track down this absolutely fabulous uh, image of a footballer in St. Louis as I recall and uh, we were convinced that this was going to be the cover of the book and then we realized it was 1914 or 1915 and we we had a long heart-to-heart -heart discussion and could we squeeze it through and then I think we both agreed that we couldn't that was not that was not right so I think there are a number of um, events and incidents that take place after 1913 and particularly in relation to tours I mean the tours is something that I'm really interested in um, and I'm not talking about the Corinthians and the pilgrims I'm talking about tours from from Mexico for example and of course from uh, from Austria etc but we had to limit ourselves in that sense and I think I think I'm glad that we actually did because we sort of confined that that period and um and 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 stipulated I think a very important period and I've just in the chat referred to Tony Mason's book um which I was just looking on my shelf over here um Association Football in English Society and I hadn't sort of thought of that but he also starts with 1863 and ends in 1915 um so I think this is an important bit of um global football history that we need to consider because we I think we're very often we it's tempting to start with um, what 1930 the first World Cup and um, you know the organization of the game and access to sources but in many ways this is I think even more interesting and, and obviously more challenging but I would say potentially even more rewarding than um, starting a little later. Sorry I just have a very uh, practical logistical question. Uh, I saw this as being recording. How is recorded how will it be shared afterward by email to the participants or posted somewhere or not? <laughs> it, it, 
it gets posted on the, the society webpage. There's a, a tab that says videos and we have a YouTube channel, which will have right. all our, our sessions plus, um, you know, other videos there. It's, it's getting to be quite the good collection. And I had a question, uh, if that was okay. Yeah, um, the question I have is, this is very interesting, actually, um, both Chris and George's book, as well as Brian's book too. Um, recently, I watched the, the recording of, of the, the, the kind of discussion about his book. Being new to this and being new to the, the, the society, I was wondering if there's any, any funding from the US Soccer Federation in terms of whether it's putting together a documentary, because th this is very, very valuable information, both, I mean, from the two authors today, Brian, and I'm sure many others, but whether there's any, any opportunity to, to turn this into almost like a documentary about the history of soccer in the United States, because most people, uh, you ask the average fan, and I think, as, as you guys probably know, a lot of them think that uh, NESL was, was the beginning of, of the, the history of professional soccer in this country. Yeah, and I just just want to see if there's any uh, <laughs> any feedback on that because I'm relatively new to um, these these topics. One might cynically say that some would like to think soccer began in 1994. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think you know the the funding available from um, uh, uh, soccer organizations is is pretty limited, and I know for me personally, one one of the challenges within the kind of the normal academic channels is that um, in some ways sport sport is still kind of um, looked upon in some quarters as is being not worthy of scholarly attention and so so it is a bit of an uphill battle um, both within uh, the academic community and in, in kind of the the organizations that exist to to help fund good historical work um, and then also, also within uh, sport organizations, um, I, I, I'm not sure that there's that much in, interest or, or, or inclination um, if, if supporting this type of research. I think it's it's useful to them, but I think they have other priorities, and uh, it's kind of been an ongoing ongoing discussion within uh, within the organization and um, uh, among many of us, uh, usually over over beers and uh, and pubs and places like that. I'll add a, a comment to that. I mean, the reason why 2021 was super important was we have these two scholarly books, right? That should go right next to one another on, on the bookshelf, right? Brian's book, and then now this collection. Um, before that, a lot of the history was written uh, by journalists who were interested in history, right? Uh, you know, Roger, Colin, and others that have been mentioned. Um, together, obviously, they're, they're, they're painting a, a fuller picture. I've dabbled a little bit in the documentary storytelling, which I think is another really important way to get this message out, right? It's visual. Uh, there's a different type of storytelling uh, going on. So I, I would love to see, see more of that as we move towards 2026, which will be a really important threshold, you know, for, for people in the society and others to really get our, our long, varied, uh, and interesting soccer history out there to folks in all these different channels, whether it's the scholarly work, uh, coffee table book, uh, readable narrative, uh, a documentary. So uh, keep doing the good work, everybody. Uh, first, to, to Mr. Harris's uh comment or uh, observation, you've got about as much chance of getting money from U.S. soccer as you have and the group here going to the moon. Uh, there is no interest, no background, no, uh, what's the word, recognition for any of that stuff. Uh, they just don't have a clue about that. I worked there for 12 years, two different times, and I'm just telling you, good luck with that. It might not be in my lifetime, although I'm 70. Uh, number two, uh, and it just happened when Tom talked about 26, uh, this country will have the, if it, if it does 27, will have the best uh, ball soccer trifecta in the history of the sport. If you think of 26, 27, if they do apply, and I think they would uh, get it, 
the 27 Women's World Cup and then the Olympic tournament in 28, which the first time in history could almost be done in two counties in California, Los Angeles County and Orange County. They, if I don't have any idea how they're going to do that tournament, but they could almost hold that. Depends on whether they want to grow the game as it happened in in 84 and 96 with the other with the other um, uh, outside venues. That, that'll be a cost factor, I'm sure, to them only and what television tells them. But th this country faces the best trifecta in the history of the sport. And you guys should be prepared for it. It might be worth mentioning that um, FIFA does, I still I think, still offer um, some scholarships uh, related to historical study of the sport. I'm not sure if that program is still functioning or not. I don't know if anyone here yeah. has gotten yeah. funding through that. I know um, another uh, person, Stephen Apostoloff, I think had a fellowship through FIFA many years ago. So, I mean, there is that as a potential option. I think it's still available. Yeah, I saw Kevin giving his thumbs up and, and he, he'd be the one to to speak to uh, in that regard. There are, however, ageist, I'm afraid. Um, I was very keen to apply and I was told you have to be younger than 40. So there goes my chances. Correct. No, that is, that's a new development to the scholarship. It's, design, it's now been switched. It used to be a far more open um, scholarship funding opportunity to pretty much anyone working on any fields related to football. So it was history, sociology, econ economics, uh, medicine, et cetera. And now um, the idea is to really make it a, a scholarship for younger scholars um, or younger researchers, people who alternatively would not necessarily have a lot of other opportunities to get funding. Um, whereas the view was that anyone who is, um, yes, uh, above a certain age level probably is in a more stable position potentially. And and therefore would have other funding opportunities uh, to do that. So um, if I may, um, uh, since I'm, I have the, the floor, can I go ahead and throw a question to both Chris and George? Um, I'm curious, kind of, if you take a step back from the process of the book now, um, what are the key lessons that you learned from the, the entire process? What takeaways do you take from, from the entire process, but then also from a content substance point of view, what are the what are the big kind of synthesis themes um, where you say uh, this is really what we learn from the book and turning that going forward as to where do you see what are the next projects um, that you think would come out as a natural uh, evolution of this of this uh, collection? Where do you think the next step would go? I'm happy to kick off. Um, David mentioned. Um, Carrots and, and sticks. Um, I don't think we used any sticks. Um, if I did this again, I'd be using the stick in a, a far more effective way. Um, joking aside, I think more seriously, though, as I, as, as I say in the conclusion, I'm just going to read that one sentence, which says, we did not claim this to be an exhaustive examination of the development of soccer across the United States between 1863 and 1913. In other words, this is uh, an, an early, uh, one of the, the first foray into this, into this field. And I look forward to the reviews and the critiques of the text, because I think there's so much more out there, which we have not been able to, to uncover. I think what it does say, um, the, the, the broader theme, speaking to the broader theme is this, and I make this point in the final paragraph, is that um, what is really exceptional about U.S. soccer history is that it dates well before many of the traditional and current um, uh, superpowers that even kicked the ball. So in other words, U.S. soccer history is old. It's, it's been around for, for, for 150 um, plus uh, years. And I think it should get the relevant credit for that. Um, I think what we do need is more studies to solidify this. And um, I'd like to think that by the time we come to 2026, there will be more than just these two scholarly texts on, the, on, on bookshelves. And that would be um, uh, you know, we, we, we would have um, additions to the uh, uh, to the field. So this idea of um, of U.S. soccer history being um, important, I think, needs to be placed in, 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 in context and in global historical terms, I think, is, is absolutely central. The U.S. is central to global uh, football history. 
Yeah, to the question on on next steps, I know just um, speaking with respect to my own chapter um, and kind of circling back to a, a point that uh, David made earlier about, you know, you find so much, um, you find so many interesting threads in the research process and um, and the inclination is to, to chase them all because they're really, really, really interesting. Um, it, 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 so I was thinking about what he, what he said and I was thinking about um, what Barbara Tuckman said in, in one of her books about, um, about uh, doing research and, and knowing when to stop <laughs> and then, and then using, using things that you found to, to kind of spawn new projects. Um, and so there are kind of some things that, that I found on the chapter in, on Los Angeles in particular that I think would be, would be interesting um, uh, for a new project, but I'm still kind of batting around those ideas, um, those ideas in my mind and thinking about whether it'd be, it'd be worth pursuing. Um, you know, there's one point in particular that I didn't, didn't really hit on the chapter, but um, I thought was kind of interesting. And, you know, in a lot of the chapters, you see the game essentially growing around specific industries, specific groups of people, um, you know, textile mills, um, shipbuilders, and so on and so forth. And in Los Angeles, I didn't get the sense that that was the case at all. It was kind of this random, <laughs> random grouping of, of people that moved west for various reasons. And um, and kind of taking that idea and, and, and playing with it, I think would be interesting. But but I'm only just starting um, starting in that regard. That's fascinating. You mentioned that, George, because it, in Oregon, it seemed like a lot of the same thing. You know, um, one of the key figures, George Cameron, was an attorney in the city. It wasn't like you had, you know, um, there wasn't any one specific industry that seemed to predominate this the sponsorship or where players were were coming from so i don't i think it'd be fascinating to look into that further if that's you know unique to west coast development of the game i'll just uh piggyback on that those two um zach and george um in atlanta or in the southeast what i noticed is um, a bit of a similar uh situation where you had the atlanta organizers we talked about methonia which is west of the city and, and was labor-based the Atlanta organizers are all uh, skilled professionals mostly. Um, and they also were um, very involved, many of them in trying to establish or promote a regional league in the Southeast. And that is not something that I, you know, and despite having very few members or comparatively few members to Birmingham, Alabama, which had a very large league and one that ran for quite a while between the 1890s all the way up to the mid 1930s and had first and second 11s and so forth, but there was no real, among those leagues, which were again, more union and labor-based, there was no real effort to uh, promote the league, to engage in any kind of real uh, organizing effort for a regional league or, or, or things of that nature. It was much more insular in its character as opposed to, like I said, the, the professionals similar to what uh, George and Zach were saying in the West, um, th those in Atlanta who, did have more of that, um, I guess, that vision for what soccer could be in the Southeast. No other questions or comments out there. I'd love to see if we can get uh, kind of a, a wrap up statement, uh, a concluding statement from uh, Chris and George. If they're going to be clever, they're going to say that they already just did that because uh, Chris was talking uh, about the conclusion uh, and yeah, I'll go with my concluding comment to the introduction where it was talked about U.S. soccer history being, you know, meagerly understood and then how this collection has uh, unearthed uh, part of that history. Uh, so we have a lot of digging uh, and finding and discovering and researching and writing yet to do, uh, but I think it is better understood uh, for this collection. As I said at the outset, so proud that, that many of the society members uh, made valuable contributions. There are others out there who could have, could have, so we'll have to wait for a volume two. But uh, the last thing I'll say is, is thanks again to Chris and George uh, for persisting with this project. And I'll, I'll hand it to you uh, for, for the last word. Thanks. Thanks very much, Tom. I mean, I would I would again um, refer to CLR James's seminal text Beyond the Boundary, and that is um, 
taking sports seriously, and obviously in his case is taking uh, cricket in the West Indies seriously. And I think we need to take soccer in the United States seriously because it has a long, serious history that um, that the authors have demonstrated is is there, and uh, there's much more to be untapped. So let's take this this game seriously. George, come on, final word. Oh, but that was such a good, punchy conclusion. Now I've just <laughs> now I'm just gonna ruin it. We edit this part out and and end with Chris's uh, rhetorical flourish there. We shall. Thank you to everybody. Happy New Year. We'll let you know uh, about our next program. Uh, thanks for all your support and your participation. <laughs>